Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Today, our guest is Roland Kays. He is a zoologist with a broad interest in ecology and conservation. Um, he is actually the director of the Biodiversity Biodiversity Laboratory at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and a research associate professor at North Carolina State University. He's got a brand new book out that is just beautiful. I mean, the pictures in it are incredible, but the information in it is really important, and we're going to be talking about it. The book is called Candid Creatures, How Camera Traps Reveal the Mysteries of Nature. And what's great about the book is that it does have a lot of photos of, uh, you know, these animals, exotic, and even ones that we see all the time, um, taken very candidly without any humans present with these camera traps. But some of the conclusions that scientists are able to make, um, we're going to talk about how we can learn about how humans and wildlife can coexist, maybe in a better way. And so I'm thrilled to have Roland on the show today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Roland. We're glad to well, have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Well, let's dive into your book, Candid Creatures. Talk to us eg- about exactly what a camera trap is and, and who uses those, Roland. Sure. So camera traps are basically motion-sensitive cameras. So um, generally it's a motion sensor and a camera in a waterproof box strapped to a tree. And they will take pictures whenever an animal walks by. And so scientists have been using these uh, for quite a long time. But just in the last few years, with the digital cameras starting to really become useful, um, they've really taken off. And so the science that we've learned in the last few years from camera traps and the amount of really cool pictures from all around the world has really taken off. Um, These are also used quite a lot by hunters who are looking to find out where where the big deer are hiding out in their hunting lands. Hmm, interesting. Now, when we talk about scientists using these camera traps, what kind of information can they glean from just still images that are taken when humans are not present? Well, the great thing about these cameras is they, um, they record whenever an animal walks by. So you get a record of all the animals that are using a particular place and that's really, it's really sort of basic fundamental information about, about a place, about what animals live somewhere, and then also about the animals, because you can start to compare and see, well, where did you find them? Where did you not find them? Maybe where are they really common? Where are they really rare? And then start to uncode, you know, what are the factors that affect the survival of this species? So once you start adding it up, um, you know, there's some things you can get from single images that are really interesting, but a lot of the science and conservation work comes from adding them up across many, many sites that have cameras and starting to see these patterns of, of, of what factors in the landscape, especially related to, you know, often development, um, affect the ability of these animals to survive. Well, and do scientists ever use video camera traps? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Video camera traps are getting more popular. Um, and you get, uh, you know, sometimes some better information, more details about animal behavior. Um, sometimes you get sound from the animals, which is super fun and sometimes also, also um, interesting and useful. Um, the trick about the video camera traps is it just becomes a lot more, uh, it's more difficult to deal with. If you put out, you know, 50 camera traps and they each record 1,000 30-second videos, 
you got a lot of videos you have to yeah, go through that's and, a lot. and manage. And so from that perspective, the pictures are a little bit easier because you can, you can flip through them really quickly um, and manage them. So uh, I think, I think we'll, we'll definitely see more and more video uh, camera trapping in the future as we get maybe some software tools to help us manage, um, manage them a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Software tools versus legions of interns looking at looking at videos. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I'm wondering, just based on you know the safety of the camera traps, you know, with the animals, if a camera trap flashes while taking a photo in the dark, does that make an animal in the images more vulnerable to predators? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think so. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're in, if you're out there at night. And someone takes a picture of you with a with a normal flash. It does blind you, right? It blinds us, and it's going to blind the other animals as well. Now, fortunately, most of the camera traps that we use these days have infrared flashes that don't blind the animals. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why you get these black and white sort of night vision pictures at night. Uh, and that uh, so that uh, kind of eliminates that problem. There are some people who still use the the what we call white flashes because the you know the color pictures are just a little bit more beautiful. Um, but in those cases, you know, the animals are going to um, they'll blink it off, and, and, and you know they're not going to get injured by the flash. Actually, they'll just kind of be blinded for a second until they walk away and um, get their their get their night vision back. And you know, in that case, they're probably going to avoid that spot for a little while because <laughs> they don't yeah. want to get flashed again. Um, and that's the, one of the nice things about the infrared camera is uh, the animals aren't going to avoid the site. You know, they weren't bothered by it. Um, that's why we we call it a non-invasive survey method because it's, you know, usually usually they don't even see the camera. Sometimes they notice the camera and look at it. Sometimes they'll sniff it a little bit. Um, sometimes they'll even taste it or bite it, which is kind of annoying. Or black <laughs> bears will use it as a back scratch, which kind of messes it up a little bit. But um, usually they just ignore it. Yeah, because I, I read in the book that, you know, some of the camera traps are baited. And I was thinking between that and the flash, you know, if you are an animal that, you know, is prey versus predator and, you know, that either the flash illuminates your position uh, to a predator or the bait, you know, has you kind of hung up in an area where your predator can easily get you. Does that make the animals more vulnerable? Uh, is there any evidence that baited camera traps might be a little bit dangerous or not? No, I don't think they would be, they would be dangerous. Uh, you know, the baited camera traps will, uh, will attract some species and they might also sort of scare other species away. So, um, uh, usually, usually, uh, personally, I don't use a whole lot of baited camera traps unless there's some really, really rare species that it's just you need something to lure them in in front of the camera trap. Um, we usually run our cameras without bait or scent lure, just randomly out in the landscape to see what animals are actually there. Mm-hmm. But, 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 you know, so I, I do. I have used bait, in, you know, from time to time for certain occasions, and you know, even then, the animals usually kind of swing by and check it out, and then. Um, usually it's a bait they can't actually eat. It's a scent lure of some sort. They sniff it, they're curious, and then they move on. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, that some of the bears use the camera traps as back scratchers, and uh, some of your book notes that other animals are problematic camera vandals. Tell us about these animals and what scientists learn, actually, from that behavior. Yeah, well, so, you know... um, the, the, usually the cameras aren't flashing. They, they don't really make much of a noise, if, if any, so um, they're not freaking the animals out. But they notice it. I think these animals know their environment very well, and they walk by and see, hey, there's a piece of plastic strapped to the tree that wasn't there before, and, you know, maybe it's, it's got a little bit of a smell to it that they notice. Um, and so you, you see different... Um, you see animals looking right at the camera. You see animals sometimes come up and sniff the camera. Um, 
the uh, some of the worst offenders are elephants. There's some parts of the world where elephants are persecuted, and they, uh, you know, they're very afraid of people, and they really don't like people. And I think when they see something in the forest in their in their domain that has this human scent to it, they'll wreck it. And mm. uh, it's hard to stop an elephant from wrecking something. <laughs> Yeah, I would imagine so. Now, your book mentions other devices that biologists have in their toolbox. Um, you mentioned traditional traps, tracking collars, binoculars, and mist traps. And those are, besides the binoculars, I don't know much about the other devices. I'd love for you to take some time to compare and contrast the kind of information that these devices and then camera traps give us, and what are some of the advantages and disadvantages for each? Well, sure. So, you know, each of these is... Um, designed in one way or the other to find an animal and to let, let a scientist see that an animal was in a place at a, at a time, right? And mm-hmm. so, obviously, these physical traps are, are catching the animal, holding the animal, um, and that way uh, you um, can get extra information like a DNA sample, you can take measurements, um, you can put on a tracking collar, for example, from these captures. So, so live capture is still really important, um, but it's a lot of work, because you have to go check the trap, you know, usually multiple times per day. Um, and it is invasive. You know, you are trapping that animal. You might, there's risk to the animal. And so if you don't have to do it, um, you know, some other, other device, devices like camera traps let you know that the animal is there and um, without touching the animal, without harming the animal. And they're a lot less labor because uh, you don't have to check them every day. You know, you leave them out for, there for a couple weeks, come back, and get your images, but at the same time, the camera trap data is more limited in that um, you don't have a DNA sample, you don't, you're not able to put a tracking collar and see everywhere the animal goes, um, and the other thing is, uh, which is kind of interesting, is the issue of identifying individuals. Um, mm. If you catch an animal, you know, you can put an ear tag or a, some, some, some marker, so when you catch them again, you know, okay, this is, you know, animal 72 or whatever, um, and with, with camera trapping, there are some species you can identify, like tigers are awesome because they have these stripes and you can match the patterns and you can give them all names and, and, and you can get a lot of information. You can look at density of the animals. You can look at survival from year to year. Um, you can look at reproduction sometimes if you see a female that has a cub. So you can get all this extra information if you, if you can identify the individual. But think about most mammals in the world. They don't have those unique stripe patterns. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, in North America, coyotes all pretty much look the same. Raccoons all pretty much look the same. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you, you, you lose that bit of information in, in most camera trap studies. Um, although there are some that will catch, say, bears and give them colorful ear tags and then photo, you know, and then capture them later and, and identify individuals. So there's some ways around it. And what is a mist trap? Because that was one of oh, the things you mentioned. Yeah, that I wasn't uh, sure what that was. Oh, sure. So a mist net is um, is a uh, it's kind of a um, very thin netting that you string up, um, kind of like a volleyball net, and uh, it's designed to catch birds and bats. And so mm. they're they're very very thin nets, so the animals don't see them very well, and they're likely to fly into them, and then they get kind of tangled in the net, and then you go pull them out, and you can. Um, it's a good way to catch those animals. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, we're going to be taking a quick break in just a moment. And while we do, folks, if you want to check out more about what Roland Kays and, and this book is all about, you can go to his website. Isn't it RolandKays.com, Roland? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, and his last name is spelled K-A-Y-S. So keep listening to us right here at voiceamerica.com, but you can open up a new tab in your web browser, and while we're on a commercial break, check out his website. But don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad you could all tune in today and thrilled to have our guest, Roland Kays, today. We're talking about his brand new book. It's called Candid Creatures, How Camera Traps Reveal the Mysteries of Nature. And during the last segment, we were talking about some of the information that scientists can glean uh, from camera traps. But now we're going to talk about how that information can be used um, and what the you know, what the utility of this information is. So, Roland, in your book, you talked about how camera traps provided some pretty amazing information about the Angolan giant sable. Tell us about that story. Right. So, 
the, uh, the, the Angolan, the giant sable antelope was, uh, it lives in a small part of Africa in Angola. And um, during the, about a 20-year long civil war in Angola, no one saw it. No one, they weren't sure it was still alive. They were afraid that during the warfare, they had all gotten hunted and poached out. And, um, and then uh, an effort was made to go look for them when the war sort of settled down. And, uh, and a camera trap was one of the ways that they were able to verify that they were still alive. And I, I like that example because it shows you that just with one picture. So a lot of times we like this big sample size and we run hundreds, hundreds of cameras and get lots of data. But sometimes a single picture can show you something very profound like, yes, an animal still lives here. Um, there's another example. The Sumatran ground cuckoo is a small bird um, that lives on the ground. It's kind of like a roadrunner. And uh, they got a, a photograph, again, verified that people had thought it was extinct because bird, no bird watchers had seen it in a long time. And then they found it in some camera trap pictures. And it was like, yay, it's still here. Now we know where it is. And they can set up some follow-up studies on both species. That is remarkable. I, I also loved reading about how scientists use the mark recapture method to study animal populations. I, I think that's really fascinating. Talk to our listeners about that. Sure. Well, so so um, a lot of times you need to know or you want to know what's the density of animals. How many animals are in this area? How many animals are in this park? How many animals are in my state or something like that? And Counting animals is really tricky because they're always running away from you. You can't just go out like you can trees and just, you know, count all the trees in a, in a, in a certain area. And so um, the method, the, the, one of the, be- the best methods is often known as, as mark recapture. And, and the idea is that you mark the animals so that you can identify them individually, and then you recapture them and, and see uh, then the patterns of these recaptures let you, you, can, you, you can do some math and start to figure out what the actual density. So you're, you're actually counting individuals, and you're recognizing that you're probably never going to get every single individual. Um, and so that's kind of where some of, the, um, some of the estimation and the calculations come in. Uh, but basically, you're looking at your patterns of, of reciting the same animals. And, and traditionally, it's been, it's been called mark recapture because you would, you would catch an animal, you would give it a mark, like an ear tag, and then you would recapture it and you'd say, oh, here's animal 72 again. And then you'd let them go and then you'd, you'd do it again. Um, that's the traditional method. And one of the, the, the great sort of pioneering studies with camera traps came with tigers where they uh, realized that these animals were already marked. <laughs> they didn't have to catch them and give them marks because they had these, um, these stripes. And so they, they conducted this sort of what was traditionally a mark recapture. That now they just call it a you know, reciting study to look at the patterns that these individuals um, occurred over time. And so they had uh, a really amazing study over 10 years where they could look at survival of individual animals and reproduction and density, um, and then also over many, many different locations where they were able to relate, well, you know, why are there more tigers in this place than in that place? And they started to relate it to the amount of prey uh, that, that was available in those places, which were also recorded on some camera traps. Well, and that leads to my next question. You know, we know that um, in certain parts of the world, there are changes in animal population. And, you know, we, we want to try and understand why, you know, is there a human element to this? Are there other factors, you know, climate change? Who knows what? How does a, a static still shot from, you know, a camera trap help us understand what drives changes in animal populations? Right. Well, you, it, it comes from making comparisons over space or time. 
And so over time, obviously, you can look for trends of, of animal populations to see if they're going up or they're going down um, in a given area. And then over space, this is what lets you really start to look at what factors, like why, why are there lots of, of tigers in one place and not in another place? Or how does, how does it vary, for example, um, a, a relative to road density and if roads are a problem or relative to uh, where poaching occurs or, say, the edge of a national park. Some studies have found you know, el- uh, um, some sensitive, sensitive elephants avoid the edge of a park because it's, they think it's too, you know, they, 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 there's people that are living near the edge and so they avoid it. So a lot of times it's, about not, it's not just about getting one picture, but it's about getting a lot of dots on the maps. That, that you can then do these analysis to try to understand what habitat do these animals need, how much disturbance can they tolerate, and how does that change over time. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that there's a lot that goes into actually setting up the study design, where to place the cameras, um, and, and all of the various factors that scientists um, have to consider as they're creating their study design. Talk to us about how that is done. Yeah, well, that's the so that's the um, that's kind of the in, in some ways it's tricky, but in some ways it's kind of fun because this is where you're asking your question as a scientist. You're saying what um, you know, what is my research question, and then how can I set up the cameras to answer that? So we just had a project recently where we wanted to know the effect of hunting and hiking on wildlife communities, and so to ask this question, we thought of well, what what series of places can we run our cameras to Asked this question, and we thought about um, the way hunting occurs in in North America, and it's often in these protected areas, these parks, and some parks allow hunting and some parks don't. So what we did was we found a whole bunch of pairs of parks that were right near each other, so they they had the same habitat, the same animal community, you know, the same elevational profiles Mm -hmm. and things like that, but one would be hunted and one would be not. So we had this pretty cool experiment that's already been set up for decades now where people have been going and hunting in the, say, the game land, and then next door in the state park, hunting is not allowed, and so these animals have been living in this situation for for decades now, and we could see and go in and run cameras, equal amounts of cameras on both sides, to look to see if there was an effect there. And what we found, actually, from the hunting side was that um, some of the animals that were hunted were a little less common, such as deer, raccoons, and squirrels, um, mm-hmm. but they were still pretty common. So the, you know, in these areas, hunting is being managed by wildlife managers to be sustainable, and our results suggest that you know, they're doing a pretty good job for that because the game populations are still quite high where they're hunted compared to where they're not hunted. Um, and the other in- interesting sort of surprising bit a little bit was that coyotes were actually more common in areas that were hunted. Hmm. I wonder why that is. Were the, did you uh, make any conclusions about that? We, we, we can speculate. We don't have data to test the conclusions, but there's been some other work um, by other people who have looked at coyote populations and social structure, and they find that coyotes um, ha- are regulated to a large extent by um, their social structure. So there's these packs that mm-hmm. have the territories, and they keep out the other animals when they have a breeding territory. They howl to let them know where it is. They scent mark. And if a, if a youngster, you know, if a young animal wanders into someone else's territory, they get beat up pretty bad. And so we think this actually kind of uh, creates this, um, uh, r- regulates how many animals are in an area. And if you start having hunting, 
you disrupt all this social system. So you don't have the howling, you don't have the scent marking, and you have these vacancies, and you get all these young animals that are looking to set up a new territory that are coming in. So this is one hypothesis, is that you, you take out one coyote and four move in to try to take over that spot, and, you know, if it just happened once, then that would, that would go back to some kind of equilibrium. But if it's constantly happening, if there's constantly hunters and trappers taking out these animals, it's kind of this, this vacuum sucking in coyotes from all the surrounding areas. Interesting, interesting. Uh, now, your book points out, and I think this will be exciting for a lot of our listeners, that amateurs also use camera traps to connect with nature, and that, in fact, um, there's a citizen science project called eMammal, and that sounds really cool. I'd love for you to tell us more about that. Sure. So eMammal is, um, is a project that I'm involved with that lo- looks to involve the public in, ca- in camera trapping crowdsourcing the field work. So we want people to actually go out into nature and run camera traps and then share all the pictures with us. And it's really great because it allows us to sample over larger areas and sample areas that we maybe can't get to, Um, sample sometimes private land. We have people running cameras sometimes in their own backyard or in the woods behind their house because they want to know what's living back there. And mm-hmm. we want to know that too. And by, by, by doing this, we get this kind of this double benefit of getting, getting more uh, data from the science point of view, but also getting people engaged with nature. Um, and we found that they, they, uh, they learn more about wildlife, obviously by, by, by participating. And they also become advocates for wildlife. They're often you know, sharing their pictures, telling other people about the animals in their backyard. They sort of become the de facto um, animal expert in their neighborhood or wherever they're, they're, they're running the cameras. That's really cool. I love that. And how do people find eMammal? Should we just Google it or where's yep. the best place to connect? Yeah, it's online right now uh, at eMammal.com. And uh, we have, um, or maybe it's .org. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a research project in collaboration with the Smithsonian. And uh, if you have your own camera trap, you can sign up and, um, and share your information. And we have, we have a new feature coming on soon where you'll automatically get a report that compares what you got with what other people have been getting. Um, oh, and cool. uh, and we have we have some projects where we actually have cameras we can loan out if you don't already have a camera, um, and we'll be starting a new one, a pretty ambitious project later this year in North Carolina, trying to survey the entire state, so all hundred counties, getting really good data, uh, working with hunters and non-hunters who want to run camera traps and share the information with us and really get a uh, a detailed look across the state at the at the animals. I'm really excited about that. That'll start later this year. That is very cool. And I can imagine that a lot of students are going to want to, to get involved with that, maybe even science teachers and what have you. Do you have an outreach uh, program in place to let schools know about this? Yes, we do. Actually, we, we've been working uh, with a project called Students Discover that's all uh-huh. about getting kids doing real science projects um, that where we don't know, re- you know what the answer is going to be. They're conducting right. genuine research. And this is the case with camera trapping. We uh, are still learning so much about animals, whether it's in, on school property or in backyards or out of the local nature park, that um, all this information can be genuinely useful. And so at Students Discover, uh, we have uh, some lesson plans developed for specifically for middle school classrooms on different ways to use camera traps. And uh, we're actually, we have a, a, a group of teachers coming into my lab uh, later this summer to work on another group of lesson plans. So we'll have even more before too long. 
That is so cool, Roland. And I, I will help you get that information out. Awesome. Um, I, I run a, a program called the Go Green Initiative, which is a large environmental education program that's nationwide. And we'll make sure that we get out to our uh, North Carolina contacts with that information. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have much, much more with Roland Kays and his new book, Candid Creatures, How Camera Traps Reveal the Mysteries of Nature. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green radio right after this news opinion your voice counts call toll free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com take a wild guess how much garbage generated in the united states today is converted into energy is it 26 percent 43 percent or 14 percent Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Roland Kays, and he has a brand new book out that's called Candid Creatures, How Camera Traps Reveal the Mysteries of Nature. Love this book. It's just gorgeous. And I would really highly recommend that you get out on his website, which is Roland Kays, and that's K-A-Y-S dot com. You can learn about all of his work, but you can also so uh, see uh, how to order the book, and it is just amazing. The critter section of the book is beautiful. I spent hours looking at the pictures <laughs> and reading about what the camera traps have re- helped scientists learn about various animals. And so I'm going to ask you, Roland, pick out maybe three of your favorite critters in the book and tell our audience how camera traps have advanced our understanding of them. Okay, sure. Well, thanks. Well, we've talked about some already, so I'll... I'll uh... I'll skip the tiger example because that certainly is a favorite. Um, what, I, what I tried to do in the book was uh, get some pictures of 
some beautiful animals that people knew about are, are, are familiar with, like, like tigers and lions and things like that, but then also try to get some of the more obscure animals that maybe people hadn't heard of before um, to highlight, because I think some of those are, um, they're the ones that I get the most excited about, these species that we, we know very little about, and camera traps are one of the few ways that, that we get them, we get pictures of them. So one of my favorites of those is the Malay weasel, um, which I, I kind of have a soft spot for weasels in the first place. And the Malay weasel is, uh, is just crazy because it's an orange weasel. And it just doesn't seem like weasels should be orange. And not only that, but it's out during the daytime, whereas most weasels are out during the night. And um, that's about all we know about the Malay weasel. It's so mysterious, um, and there's very little information about it. But what we do have are some photographs from, the, uh, you know, from camera traps that, that capture the animal and um, show that it is out there during the day and, um, and, and that it's not too shy because sometimes it comes right up to the camera. So uh, that's, that's, I think, one of my favorite examples of an animal that uh, I would love to do more work and learn more about it from, uh, from, this, from this more of this type of research. Mm-hmm. Well, give us a couple of others because, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the big section of the book, and it's... You know, I mean, it's really packed full of amazing critters. So give us a couple more examples. Okay, sure. Another favorite one is, um, is and so, in, you know, in this section, what I try to do is talk about, uh, from a, a species point of view, from one particular animal, um, you know, where does it live and what have we learned about it specifically mm-hmm. from camera trapping? So I really dove into the original literature to see, you know, these original uh, primary papers that were published and what did they discover about the animals and then um, I would write the authors and, and say, hey, you know, I really like your, your study. Would you have pictures you could share from your research um, that I could use? And then they would, they would send the pictures, and I'd get to, uh, you know, include them in there as well. So another, another I think, a really creative research project um, was uh, done on the Tyra, which is another weasel family, showing my bias here for the weasels. Um, <laughs> tyras are, 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 are pretty big, and they're, they're like a fisher. People know what a fisher are from North America, but they live in the tropics. So um, they're, they're sort of house cat size, but skinnier and much more ferocious. And um, they're also known to eat fruit down there. And what happened was a biologist in Costa Rica saw a tyra running, running down the trail with a green plantain in his mouth. And uh, plantains are kind of like bananas, but when they're green, they're really inedible um, unless you really cook them. And obviously, a tyra can't cook them. So he thought, that's really strange. Why would a tyra be carrying around a totally unripe fruit? And so they put a camera trap on the plantain tree and um, recorded the tyra coming and plucking these green plantains. So he's getting it off the plant. And then they stuck a little tiny radio transmitter in the plantain and trapped it. And they found that this tyra was taking the radio, taking the plantains and then burying them and hiding them and waiting for them to ripen uh, and then coming back and eating it. So the, um, it was, but by doing this, it was hiding it from other monkeys or other things that might have um, otherwise come and, uh, and stolen the, the, the fruit once it ripened. That's it's so ingenious. That that's, yeah. Right. Amazing that a, um, uh, that a weasel would have the foresight to plan something like this. That's amazing. I mean, to me, that's, that's why it's fun to study animals. I mean, that, that's so surprising and incredible. You know, the book has a, a section after the critter section that I found incredible. It's called the animal neighborhood watch section. Right. 
And, you know, as much as I got carried away looking at the photos in the critter section, I loved reading about all the findings that scientists are making about animal communities through the use of camera traps. And before we talk about some of the specific neighborhoods, um, talk to our listeners about what this section entails, if you would. Well, sure. So this was, uh, you know, I think initially camera trapping was, was about individual species. It was about mm-hmm. tigers. It was about jaguars. And then, especially once we started going digital cameras and we weren't limited to these 36 rolls of film, we started realizing that we were getting all these other animals. We were getting the entire community, um, I like to say sort of chipmunk size and up, right? The, the really mm-hmm. tiny mice, you get pictures of sometimes, but you can't really identify them. So basically anything larger than that that's a bird or a mammal that walks in front of the camera traps is going to take a picture. And so... Um, and there's a lot of interesting questions you can ask about the entire communities, how they relate to each other, how they vary from place to place. And so I tried to use this section of the book to, um, on one hand, to, to, to show these studies and show you know, this community perspective, but then also to try, to try to bring in some of these amazing pictures I was getting that weren't necessarily highlighted in the earlier section. So I wanted to show off some other animals that, that were missed in the first section. Well, and I'd love to talk about the Australian Rocky Reef fish because um, up until I read that section, I I wasn't catching on that camera traps could be used underwater. And I'd like for you to talk to us about how those underwater camera traps have helped advise the establishment of some new marine protected areas in that part of the world. Right, sure. Yeah, I love this study because the pictures are so different, right? They're underwater. Yeah. You know, you see the blueness, and then there's all these fish coming around. And so, basically, they mounted a camera with a with a bait bag in front of it, and then they got these pictures of fish that would come. And they found that, you know, the, the other option to recording this type of information is to go out, go down and scuba dive and write down the fish that you see. Um, but just like, you know, animals in the forest, the fish often swim away and hide when they see you coming. And so they found that this system was much better for documenting the full diversity of animals that were out there. And their question was, um, they were getting ready to prepare some, um, some protected areas in the oceans outside of Australia. And they wanted to know, well, how many do we need and where, where should they be? And they, um, and to answer that question, they needed to know, you know, which species live where. And they found that, you know, in these different areas, they actually had quite different communities. So one protected area in one place was not going to protect all the species that are present in the area. And so they really needed to, um, to protect multiple areas in order to cover all the different species that were in these fish communities. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea, just you know, kind of at the ten thousand foot level of science informing public policy. I mean, I'm a big, big fan of that. So I love this story for that purpose. You know, there was another neighborhood that you mentioned in this section, and it was called America's Urban Predators, and. I was surprised to read about some of the discoveries that were made in San Diego and Los Angeles, for instance, regarding how far predators will actually move into town. I I found that fascinating. Talk to us about the information that was gleaned from these studies and how that information might be used by, you know, city planners or, you know, city governments. Yeah, sure. So, one of the things that I think is happening around the country is that wildlife is moving more and more into cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a period where cities were expanding and the wildlife was, was driven out. 
And, but, you know, nature adapts, and these species are starting to change their behaviors and move in. And, and the way we think it happens is that the prey, the herbivores, move in first. And they might actually find living close to people offers them a nice predator-free area because the predators mm-hmm. often are slower to move in. And so the rabbits and squirrels in your backyard don't have to worry as much about coyotes as they do when they're further, further out into the woods. But then the coyotes start moving closer in and the foxes and all these different predators, uh, you know, over time, and we're still decoding this, how this varies from city to city, what factors promote that. Um, but, you know, one of the nice things is when the predators move in, uh, they, they help control pop- the population so that the prey species don't overrun, and um, so they actually change the ecology of the site as well. And, but, but you can also then sometimes get some conflict um, in California, this is playing out with, with cats, especially, um, where you know, people who let their cats outdoors are, um, are, are really putting the animals at risk because there's so many coyotes running around who are um, quite good at, uh, at, at killing the cats. And so there's some conflict there uh, and you know, some concern of, well, do you want to have cats running around or coyotes running around? Because it doesn't seem like they, they, they uh, can both happen at the same time. Right. And does that have any impact on, you know, disease? Is there any, um, you know, information that might lead to public health concerns as a result of this or not so much? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a number of factors that go into disease issues, but one of the most important ones is if you have too many, if you have a lot of animals living at high density, then disease Mm -hmm. can spread really quickly. And I think there's some examples of that on the East Coast from raccoons where they were getting into really high densities in the 80s and early 90s, and then a new strain of rabies moved in and moved mm-hmm. through the population really fast and, and, and lowered the population. And I think, you know, if there had been predators of raccoons around, they would, that would have not been such a problem. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I do think, you know, you, you need to have the, the, the dif- different components of an ecosystem in place to have the balance of nature. And if you lose one, like predators, because they're too shy to move into urban areas, then some of the other ones can really get out of whack and you can have, uh, you know, overabundant uh, prey populations. Mm-hmm. You know, the section on cattle and wildlife in Africa was really interesting. Tell us what camera traps have helped us learn about whether or not the system can handle more herbivores when cattle and sheep and goats are added to places like Kenya, for instance. Right. So this was a really cool study in Kenya, um, and they were they worked they collaborated with a whole bunch of different ranches that had different uh, levels of cattle stocking. So cattle are are you know the economic lifeblood for a lot of people in Africa, um, and the the grasslands are very good at supporting um, hoofed animals, and you know they've been supporting hoofed animals for millennia. All the famous um, you know wildebeest and antelopes and, and zebras and giraffes that are so famous for Africa. And, um, you know, to some extent, adding cows isn't that unnatural, um, and they find that at, at relatively moderate stocking levels of cattle, um, it's not so bad. There's some wildlife that, that um, they get driven out, but for the most part, at, at smaller stocking levels, you can have cows and wildlife coexisting on a landscape. And this offers some interesting um, opportunities for ranches that try to pursue this because uh, they can get some uh, tourist dollars from, you know, uh, from tourists coming to look at the wild animals and then still mm-hmm. have some cattle there as well. But if, it, if the cattle stocking gets too high, then, um, then there's, nothing, you know, there's, there's not enough food left for the other herbivores. 
And then there's also an increase in, in, in conflict between the carnivores who, um, you know, lions, if they see a cattle or they see a zebra, you know, it looks like both, they both look like dinner to them out there in the bush. <laughs> and so um, to protect the cattle living in these situations, you need some, um, some extra efforts to really uh, keep them uh, close together and, and protect them from the lions, which is another area of active research that we're, we're learning ways to do that and to um, find ways that cattle and lion can coexist together. Very interesting. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Roland. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back. I'm so glad that you could all join us. Um, our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is Roland Kays, and we're talking about his brand new book called Candid Creatures, How Camera Traps Reveal the Mysteries of Nature, and I love this book. I highly recommend it. So go out to his website at rolandkays.com, and you can find out how to get it there. Um, we've been talking about some of the information that camera traps help reveal about communities of animals, not just individuals. And one of the communities that was studied um, and featured in your book was the Rocky Mountain Trail uh, areas uh, of the Rocky Mountains. And I'd love for you to tell us about what the camera traps picked up in terms of where predators and prey were clustering in relationship to where human hikers were found. Yeah, sure. This is a, this is a cool study from, uh, from the Rocky Mountains of Canada. And it, um, it's actually similar to the situation we were talking about a second ago with urban areas where the, the prey species um, realize humans aren't a threat and realize that they can actually use humans as a shield against predators. And so what they found in this area was that 
some of the, the larger uh, pre, uh, prey species, like elk, moose, and deer, actually preferred hiking trails that had a lot of people. And mm-hmm. um, because the predators were still scared of the people. So grizzly bears and wolves, for example, and cougars would avoid the trails that had a lot of hikers on them. And uh, hike trails that had um, sort of less than what they saw was with 18 people per day, then that, that would have um, more predators. And if they had more than 32 people per day, then they would have more of, of the prey species. So interesting that, you know, how these animals are, are dynamic and they learn things over time about what, you know, what is risky and what is safe. And, um, and that's setting up this, this sort of predator-prey game right here in the, in, our, in the parks where we like to hike around. That is so interesting, you know, that that human beings could actually create a safe space, that the prey would figure that out, that, you know, we're kind of shielded a bit um, by the hikers. I think that's amazing. Now, I want to talk about oil palm plantations because we've been hearing a lot about this. There's an increased interest in using palm oil as a biofuel and for other uh, uses. And there are rainforests that are being replaced with oil palm plantations in places in Southeast Asia. And there were some camera trap studies that you covered in the book about that area. What impact is that phenomenon of replacing rainforests with oil palm plantations having on the native wildlife there. Yeah, so this is a, this is a, a good, clear a, a example of, of how cameras can be really effective at this really simple question of, you know, what lives, when, when you replace a rainforest with oil palm, what lives in there? Is it still providing useful habitat for animals? Because you do have trees, you have oil palms, you have shade, um, but it's obviously not the same rainforest you had before. So um, are there any species that use it? And are they the ones that we're concerned about that are endangered species in the area? And the result was pretty clear-cut in that most species did not use the oil palm at all. They had um, some domestic cats and uh, a few common species like wild boar or common palm civets were in there. But the more endangered species they're really worried about, like in that region, like the tapir, the tiger, the clouded leopard, uh, they never went into the oil palm. And uh, some other species that uh, were a little bit more sensitive, you know, were found on the outside, but very rarely into the oil palm. So it showed that from a wildlife perspective, oil palm is not good habitat. Well, and then what happens to the animals that are pushed out of that area? Do they, you know, I'm sure the the density of some of those animals becomes higher, you know, in the outskirts of the oil palm plantations. What what happens to them then? Well, they're going to die. <laughs> you know, there's only so much room, unfortunately, for animals in these surrounding forests. And um, when you chop down a forest, you're going to push the animals out, and they're going to they're going to struggle. And um, and you know, it'll it'll bounce out to some 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 population. But you know, you can't just squeeze them out of habitat and expect that they'll be able to survive in these other areas. Yeah, it's not like high density housing for human beings in urban areas, right? No, it's, <laughs> no, no one's figured out the phenomenal. tiger skyscraper yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was another community or another, you know, wildlife slash human interaction community uh, study that you talked about. Actually, there were a couple uh, road underpasses and road overpasses and camera traps kind of helped to advise, you know, what was best, what the best configuration was for certain animals and how to help wildlife safely cross highways that are cut you know, right up the middle of their habitat. Talk to us about some of the findings. 
Sure. So, so this is the field of, of sort of road ecology and, um, and, and is a really good example of, of, of applied questions of how can we use this information to learn about these animals and find a way to directly help them. And in this case, you know, roads are obviously bad for wildlife because they get hit on, by cars, but also because it can fragment a population and uh, turn one population into two, which makes it smaller, subject to inbreeding, disease risk, all sorts of things. So you really want to have um, animals successfully moving across this because that will prevent the inbreeding and will also, uh, if they have a successful route that they can do a safe route, then they won't get hit, they won't go over the top and get hit by cars as much. And so um, this is really an engineering challenge and there have been a variety of solutions uh, um, proposed, and cameras are probably the best way to see if a certain solution works. And so mm-hmm. if you put a culvert underneath a highway, you can put a camera there and see who's using it and who's not using it. Um, and what they found is that the different designs are preferred by different species, um, uh, but that no one single design works. And some of these open country species like a pronghorn antelope, for example, are really shy to go through a, tube, through a tunnel. And, mm-hmm. um, and they, but if you build these big overpasses, um, which is basically just a bridge you know, over the highway, and you put natural uh, dirt and a couple of some, some vegetation on them, they'll use those quite readily and not get hit by cars or get jammed up. And so um, that has been a, a good solution for those animals. And, and then there's a couple of the, in the process. I, I'd, I'd heard about the overpasses, but as I was researching the, 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 for the book, I learned about some other really cool examples uh, for other species, um, like uh, like monkeys that or or possums in Australia that um, are reluctant to go to the ground at all, mm-hmm. and they all they had to do was string a rope over the road, and the animals that are so used to climbing <laughs> trees would just climb right over the rope to cross <laughs> the road. Um, and the most ingenious was was actually I think done in North Carolina for flying squirrels. Um, they found. All they needed to do was put a launching pad. It was kind of like a telephone pole with a diving board off the end. It was just a two-by-four. And <laughs> they have these amazing uh, pictures of these flying squirrels in the middle of the night running to the end of the plank and then jumping off into the, <laughs> into the night and gliding safely to the other side. That is amazing. Uh, you know, I, Roland, I just can't thank you enough for putting all of this information into one place where we can all take a great look at it. I, the last quick question I wanted to know is, you know, have camera traps helped us in the fight against poaching? Yes. So, uh, you know, camera traps are, are a security camera. In, in some ways. We usually don't get the data live. We don't get the pictures live because there's no way to do that from the middle of the rainforest. Um, uh, and so, but it does show you where the poachers are. It shows you, you know, who they are, and it shows you what they're going for. Sometimes you get them, you know, actually carrying the, carrying the animals around. And so this is very important for an enforcement point of view for protected areas around the world. And unfortunately, it. I do have a couple pictures of, of, of poachers, uh, you know, one carrying some, some animals, one carrying some lumber and mm-hmm. um, that they some timber they that they cut illegally, and another one with their shirts full of of ginseng, which is a plant with medicinal mm-hmm. uh, purposes that they were poaching in the Smoky Mountains. Unbelievable. Well, Roland, it was a great pleasure having you on. Everybody check out his website at rolandkays.com. Folks, thanks for joining us. And we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. 